Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 30. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our brilliant medical guide, Dr. Glenn Wollman. Hello, Glenn. Greetings, Christina, and welcome everyone to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we search uh, through the healthcare galaxy looking for ways towards optimal health. Moon Festival coming up, Christina? Moon Festival. The harvest moon is going to be shining bright this weekend, everyone. It's time for mm. some moon bathing. Moon bathing, moon dancing. Yeah, do we get any vitamins from the moon, Glenn? Uh, hmm. That's a good <laughs> That's question. A new one. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll have to do a show on that. Yes, moon bathing, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What's your week been like? Oh, exciting with this great weather. I think it's great weather. I think you guys are blue in Santa Barbara. We're kind of hazy down here in LA. I don't know what's going on. What are you doing to well, our weather? We're giving it to you. Yeah, <laughs> bring it down. The blue, come on. Yeah, we, we like to keep the blue. blue here. We like to keep the blue here. Yeah. <laughs> You'd hate for us to move up there. I guarantee it. <laughs> we might create havoc up there in Santa Barbara. <laughs> right. We'll bring up new diseases for everyone. You know. <laughs> uh, we could take care of them. Bring us your diseases. That's fabulous. You know. Today, again, we're going to look at uh, another specialty in medicine. We always like to look at the different opportunities for people to consider medicine and healing as a, as a field to go into. And part of what we try to do is show the diversity mm -hmm. of, of the field. And today we have with us someone who is very important in terms of our lives. We talk about hands mm -hmm. all the time. And we use it so much in our language. Give me a hand, a hand up, a hand me down, a uh, show of hands, uh, all sorts of things, a handful. It, it's related to so many things in our life. And we take the hand for granted yes. sometimes until we lose uh, some kind of function, even for a short amount of time. Uh, and today we're going to be speaking with a special guest, Dr. Michael Bierman who is an orthopedic surgeon and has decided to go into more of a specialty in uh, hand surgery. And we're going to be speaking with him today. And I want to get right into our discussion because this is so important. And I want to introduce you, Christina, to Dr. Michael J. Bierman. Hello, Dr. Bierman. Thank you for honoring us here on the Magical Medical Tour. Hello, Glenn and Christina. Good to see you, Michael. Good Michael, to see you, Glenn. Thank you. As, as the medical guide, I like to tell our global uh, viewing audience uh, sort of a path that I'm hoping to take today. And as always, we try to show a little bit of the heart and soul of the uh, practitioner uh, that we're working with. So we're going to start with some of your early journey, what got you into healing, what made you think about uh, moving into orthopedics and then as a specialty in medicine, uh, going into hand surgery. Then we want to talk about some of the types of things that you see commonly out there that people need to work with and then maybe some possibilities of some ideas of how people can take care of their hands and what they need to do to figure out 
when they need to see you versus someone else. Does that sound all right with you? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so let's let's start with a little bit of your original journey. When, why, how did you decide to become a healer? Um, you know, I think it really was a journey. I've got several physicians in my family. My grandfather and my father are both pediatricians and are involved in academic pediatrics, meaning that they deal with a lot of the very, very sick children. Um, I, so I was exposed very early on to, to medicine and to, you know, to health issues. Um, you know, I think like anybody, I then wanted to make sure I was going my own way. And so there was a period where I said, well, I'll be anything other than a physician and, you know, anything other than be involved in healthcare. And then by the time I was in college and, you know, it became clear to me that this is something that really did excite me and that I was very interested in. Um, I think I've always been more of a, a hands-on a mechanical type of person and orthopedics has a huge appeal because it is about, you know, in the broadest sense about fixing things. Um, you know, there are many areas in medicine and I know you talked about many of them on the show and not all of them are as straightforward as take a problem and try to fix the problem and make it better. Um, some are dealing with chronic issues, some are deal, um, but in orthopedics in general, and not that we can make everything perfect again, but we're dealing with more of a discrete, this is wrong, this nerve is being compressed, or this bone is broken, or this person ran his hand through a table saw and has nerve and tendon injuries. And, you know, it's about taking those problems and getting the optimum result for people out of them. So I think it just fit my personality and my interests um, of, you know, liking to find problems and try to solve the problems. What um, and that combined. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Go, go, I would say that combined with kind of a family background and exposure to healthcare at an early age, you know, it made, became a meandish sort of natural path. Mm. What, uh, what was your training? Tell Tell us what the training is to become a specialist like yourself. Okay. Well, after um, after college, you it's four years of medical school, and then after medical school, I did a five year orthopedic program, which is pretty much the standard to be a board certified or be a recognized orthopedic surgeon. It's a five year program. Um, the first two years of that are general surgery, meaning that we do, you know, you're learning surgical skills, you're learning how to help and take care of sicker patients. Um, and in the last three years are specifically orthopedic issues and orthopedics means bone and joint problems and it's anything from spine and back problems to sports medicine, knee and hip issues, um, joint replacement, and then obviously hand and upper extremity being part of that. And during that time, I did something that not everybody who does orthopedics do, but I did extra training in microvascular surgery, um, working under a microscope and fixing small vessels and nerves. And then after that five-year period, then there's another year that is specifically hand surgery um, and is really just putting all of those skills together in a more direct way. So I guess that makes six years after medical school, 10 years after college. So you chose specifically to go into hand, and 
did you have to venture into the other side at all in your career? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, in training, we do all the aspects of orthopedic okay. surgery. And then when I first started in practice, I did do some general orthopedics. Mm-hmm. Um, but but fairly quickly, you know, was have, you know, for the last 20 years that I've been in practice, I've been doing just, you know, when we say hand, it means hand and upper extremity. I do anything from the shoulder to the fingertips. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, so this is this is what I've I've commonly heard because I've had so many clients. I, I'm a body worker on the side, and so many clients, you know, tend to have a lot of the arthritis and all in their arms. And we find that so much of it stems from that upper back area into the shoulder blades all the way down. So so when you say hand, it's it is including all that whole area, including the shoulder blade. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And and we certainly do see a lot of people who develop pain syndromes in their arms that are related to that being at a computer all day long and tightening up those muscles in their back and neck area. Um, usually the arthritis, the really the wearing out of a joint, has more to do with repetitive activity utilizing your hands or hands and arms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but what you're describing is very, very common. And we have to deal with that. It's one of the things I have to deal with frequently is the ergonomic issues, for example, in a workplace and or or home office, but where having the right you know comfortable chairs, the right height of uh, of keyboards and and screens are really important mm-hmm. to minimize those sorts of stresses. So, so Dr. Bierman, what's interesting is I've <clears throat> been quite immersed in in children these days, and and uh, I always watch because I have a five year old son, um, and I always look at how the children these days are sitting at desks and tables and couches and on the floor. And it's, you know, I I think I do believe there was a generation where, you know, everything was quite proper and we're always taught to sit up straight and sit up straight and show your shoulders back, things like that. Now it seems to be a whole new generation (laughs) where I'm watching all this slouching and, and, you know, the kids in there, iPads and computers and and they're like always like tilted down and everything is like rounded all around whatever that instrument or or unit is that they're playing with and and the way they're using their fingers and uh, thumbs do you see any cases with children come by we've started yes I do and we've started to you know I, you know children are wonderful they they tolerate a lot more than a we adults do. So, you know, they can get away with that bad positioning and all more than an adult can. But we are starting to see real tendonitis, you know, from texting, from, you know, the heavy computer use and the video games. And it is an issue. There's no question about it. And, you know, they, there are some solutions. I mean, one is to put the game down and go out and play outside. And, you know, the others have to do with just positioning and all. Um, but the highly repetitive aspects as we you know, develop electronics at the dramatic speed that we are, are real issues. Do you feel, in your experience of what you're seeing, that uh, it is very important for us as parents to actually promote the child to to start sitting up straight, to be really aware of of those, you know, the, the straight back, the open, 
shoulders, you know, like even if you're using these, I heard you say earlier on about the ergonomics of, of an adult, you know, how you, you're tracking back towards that. Uh, do you feel that we should now start uh, preventing that in our children <laughs> or do you feel that they will adapt in time? No, I think it's something that we as parents do need to look at and try to encourage. And, you know, there's a, maybe a limit of how well we will do at that. Kids are can be pretty independent how they want to do things. But, you know, there was a reason. A lot of that classic posture stuff that you were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. you know, that there there's good reason behind all of that. You know, the, the shoulders back issue, that opens up what's called the thoracic outlet, which is where the nerves from your neck come down into your arm mm -hmm. and those nerves pass under the muscles that you feel above your collarbone and then over the first rib. And when you are and your shoulders are rolled forward, that puts more stress on those nerves. And, you know, we see real problems from that. So, yeah, I don't think it's ever too soon to start working on those things. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, you know, in the age of, you know, smartphones and small keyboards and, you know, constant texting, it's pretty hard to always get that. And I don't know that you can expect that people are going to be texting with their shoulders back and sitting upright and their phone up here. You know, it's, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue. And, you know, I, I, as a practitioner who deals with these kind of problems, you know, one of the things that you know, I think is going to happen on a positive note, will be the development of more and more voice-activated systems yes. so that people are spending less time actually, you know, using their fingers on keyboards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we the amount that people are doing keyboarding or other rapid, repetitive activities like that is not great for your hands. Um, it doesn't mean don't do it at all. I mean, we all do, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the more positive things that I've seen in the last 10 years is the degree to which voice recognition programs have improved. And, you know, if that rate of improvement continues, you know, the hope would be that 10 years from now, people even want to want to send text-type messages are going to be doing it by speaking to their phone yes. and pressing a button. Well, it's already started. I mean, I, I do have the new iPhone now, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I have yeah. to say that's one thing because I've, I've hated the small keyboards. And, you know, I have to say, Dr. Beerman, I do hold my phone up to here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it. Because I think through the yoga practice, it's like it's like you know opening up all these muscles is so yeah. relief my neck issues and my arm issues and you know uh, it's like I'm not going back there. I'm holding it up here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, I just see so much of it that that uh, it, it does, of course, uh, shed concern. Um, and you know, by the time the children, like my child is five, by the time in 10 years from now, that's a long time to, you know, do that slouching sort of posture until they're teenagers before, you know, some parents can even afford to get them a voice activated unit of some sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think it, it is well worthwhile to be trying to address that with children. Um, you know, said, so unfortunately, the the machines we're dealing with, the, you know, they're not made to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not, you know, it's good that you do have your iPhone up here when you're working, but <laughs> it's, it's not really not designed that way. <laughs> and, you know, that's, I mean, uh, a generation ago, 
you know, as computers started to become a big deal, this came up with keyboards and yeah. designs were improved. I mean, the split keyboards, which are much better, for example, tendonitis in your elbows, you know, are real advantages. You know, the keys were made easier to hit, so people were doing less kind of heavy repetitive motion with their fingers. Most good things have been done and will continue to be done. Um, you know, the current smartphone rage is, you know, we're all caught up in it. They can't live without them anymore. But, you know, we as adults don't use them the same way kids do either. I mean, they just are on, you know, texting on them nonstop. And it's, it's going to, you know, it is a potential problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that has to be looked at and, to the degree to which parents can address it, it's well worth mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's Michael, uh, as part of a process for me, one of the things that people, uh, people injure themselves. And one of the ways that they injure themselves, sometimes they're working, you know, on, a, on uh, some kind of a machine, a saw, or somebody is doing something where actually a finger might be cut off or a fingertip might be cut off. Is there something that uh, we should do if we're trying to get to the hospital? Is that finger important for us to bring or not? And if so, how should we store that? I think that might be something that would be helpful for us. No, I think that's, that's a good question. I think the, you know, there, there, I'll give it in two parts. I mean, one is what's not 100% cut off. You know, we'll often see from a table saw injury, you know, to use an example, the several fingers that are, for want of a better word, mangled, I mean, the bone's broken and the nerves and tendons have been injured. And they're just getting a, a wrap on it, something that stops the pieces from moving around more than they need to. And, you know, if you have a big roll of gauze at home, that's great. If not, you know, anything, you know, I mean, taking an old shirt, putting it on it and taping it on is good so that things are kind of still until you get in there and we can start dealing with it definitively. Um, for pieces that are actually cut off, sometimes we can make use of them and sometimes we cannot. Um, but, but in terms of bringing them in, you know, the simple rule is cold is better. You don't want, you know, the cooler you keep the tissue, the longer it will survive and the better chance that we can reuse it. You don't want to put it directly on ice. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, if you have the resources wrapping it, you know, in some moist gauze or moist, even moist paper towels, and then putting those on ice is great. Um, if you don't have that, you know, if you got a cooler and one of a cold pack in the freezer, you know, wrap anything, any, literally anything you have around the piece and put it in there. Just directly touching ice and freezing tissue is not good for it. But short of that, cooler is better. And there, uh, you know, one of the... Um, kind of the classic stories that we hand surgeons talk about is that there was a, and this, this was not my patient, but a patient lost a couple of fingers in a boating accident and they got cut off by a propeller and they went to the bottom of this lake and the patient got brought in. Well, they didn't have the fingers. They later, some divers were able to get the finger, you know, recover the fingers and they didn't get them replanted for 24 hours after the injury. But because they were at the bottom of a cold lake, they survived. The tissue, you know, the, the metabolism of the tissue was decreased. The damage to the tissue from it not being connected, not having a blood supply was less. And we were able to, you know, keep the fingers alive and put them back on. Fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's always so, a great so, story. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank God no and fish so of mine ate them, though. <laughs> yeah, well, it's that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not, we wouldn't recommend that as the way of doing things, but it never hurts. You always want to bring in anything you can. Um, you know, you don't want to, if the patient is bleeding badly, you've got to focus on that first, you know, get pressure on the wounds, you know, get the patient, you know, the patient taken care of. And even if it means somebody else finding the pieces and bringing them in, that's better than not bringing them in. And, you know, there are times when we can't save them, where we can't put them back. But, you know, if you don't have them, you never can put them back. Can you tell uh, when you're in the operating room, if, if you see someone like that, can you look at the finger, look at the person, put it all together and say, we shouldn't even attempt this or we should attempt it, but it may not work? Do you, can you tell that right away, just looking with all of your knowledge? Yes, to a large extent. I mean, there are, there are some basic you know, rules we deal with. I mean, for example, you know, somebody who is considerably older, who is diabetic mm. and who smokes cigarettes mm. is not a good person to try to do a replant on. Right. And the reasons being that it's much less likely to survive. And when we do a true replant, as you're talking about, when things are cut off and under the microscope, I'm repairing the blood vessels to reestablish blood flow to that piece. And we have to, after we do it, we have to keep them in the hospital and we have to keep them anticoagulated. We have to keep them on blood thinners. So there are issues and, you know, that can cause other medical problems. So you don't want to do that if there's not a substantial chance of the piece surviving. So when it's people who are, as I said, a heavy smoker, it just, it's not going to survive because the nicotine from the smoking, you know, just closes off those small blood vessels. Mm. Um, you know, a, an older diabetic, it, the chances are not high enough to really be worth the health risk of anticoagulating them generally. And then the other part is it depends tremendously on what's off. If somebody cuts off a thumb, we will make a huge effort to put it back on because, you know, our thumbs are one of the things that distinguish us from other animals. I mean, they, they allow us to grip it, grip and use our hands in many different ways. Whereas somebody who loses either an index finger or a small finger is often better off not trying to put that back on because they can still function very well with their hand. Um, so there, there are a lot of issues like that. If, you know, if you've lost all of all four fingers are off, obviously it's better to try to get them back on because <laughs> otherwise you have no hand. You know, they, so you know those all of those are variables that we deal with, and you know some of them are, you know, are things that I have to figure out as the physician. Many of them are things that I have to talk with the patient about and say, you know, this is you know realistically the chances here are not very high or you know and you will do fine without this or alternatively you know this is something that's going to be so important to you that even though you're going to go through a pretty significant process afterwards it's worth it mm. and um age of the patient is a huge aspect of that speaking uh, speaking of transplants and things like that many of us have uh on our license plate that uh, little pink dot that considers organ transplants. You know, we talk about kidneys and eyes and ligaments and things like that, but there's something new out there in your specialty now, uh, actual hand transplants where people can donate uh, their hands to someone else. Can, wow. I, I know that, yeah, this is something that's yeah. pretty new on the uh, horizon. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, the, the, the first hand transplant was done about three years ago, and there is no question that we can take a hand from somebody who's died and 
put it on somebody who has lost their hand for any one of you know, any traumatic reason um, and get it to survive. Um, you know, we've been in a sense doing that for a long time with replants, with people, you know, which you had just brought up with taking people who have cut off their own limb and putting it back on. The difference with transplants, obviously, is it's somebody else's tissue, and we have the issue of rejection. You know, that your body and it wants to, uh, for want of a better word, wants to fight. There's an immunological response to any foreign tissue that's a t you know that's involved. And this, if we do a heart transplant, the patient needs to be on immunosuppressive drugs really for the rest of their life. Um, there, there is a debate as to the role of that for extremity transplants, because obviously that's, they're not life and death situations as a heart transplant might be. So you, know, you take somebody who may be functioning reasonably well with just one hand, and not everybody, and I have many, not, not, I won't say many, but I've probably got 20 patients in my practice who are missing all or almost all of a hand mm. for various reasons. And frankly, the majority of them aren't really interested in transplants because of those other issues, the issues of having to be on immunosuppressive drugs. Mm. But having said that, there are certainly people where it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you've lost both your hands is an obvious example of that. And, and in some people where they've lost a dominant hand and, you know, are, and it's affected their ability to do any of the kind of their pre-injury functions, there's a role for it. Um, they're not perfect. You don't get quite all of your motion, but you get pretty good motion back afterwards, and you get pretty decent sensation back. So it's it's kind of an exciting and new field that's developing. Um, there, I don't know what the number is now. I mean, a year ago there were only been about ten done in the world. I think this in the last twelve months that's probably tripled. But you know that's the kind of numbers we're talking about. Still not common. Still not as common as heart, lung, or kidney transplants. But there's definitely a, it's a developing area and one that will have applications. I was listening to a, a talk or a lecture on that, and some of the interesting sidelights for me that you know you have the uh, families that have to make that decision, and the team that goes out to talk with them, they actually will for the sake of the person who might be dying and giving up their hands, they actually will put uh, some kind of a prosthetic device on their arms and they will match it to the skin color and try and make it look as close as possible to their normal. Mm. It's a great gift. The other part of it that I thought was very interesting is when we look at the teams that go in, like the surgeons for the heart or the surgeons for the eye or the ligaments, the hand is now taking the biggest priority in terms of that's the one that has to go in first. The team that takes the hands when someone dies yeah. have to go in first because the other organs they can keep alive for a little longer or keep functioning, but the hands they can't. So I, th I thought that was somewhat interesting yeah. that they now have moved to the top as going in pretty quickly. So, so, for example, if I had lost a hand a year ago and I'm waiting for a transplant, like the people who are waiting for transplants for hearts and other organs, you could still do the surgery after a certain amount of time? Yes, there's really not any limit to how long that time can be because you still have the bone up to the level of where you amputated or lost your mm -hmm. hand or your arm, and we're going to connect to that. 
you still have blood vessels that go down to that level and we're going to connect to those. So, you know, it's a different, again, this is really the difference of the, as important as these things are, you know, as your hands are for your function, it's not a life or death situation. If your heart stops working, you're not going to be around. But if you lose a hand, you're there, you're functioning. We don't need, you know, it's not a matter of, we don't do transplants onto people acutely, meaning when they've, we don't need somebody who's lost their, had a traumatic injury that day to get a transplant. These are things that are generally done down the road. And, um, and it can be six months, it can be a year, it can really can be five or 10 years. What gives you the most satisfaction in the work that you do? Um, you know, in a, the satisfaction comes from taking people who have a problem that is substantially interrupting their life and being able to make it better and getting them back to where they can do all the things they want to do. And it can be from smaller problems I treat. For example, somebody with bad carpal tunnel syndrome who is in carpal tunnel syndrome is pressure on the main nerve to your hand called the median nerve at the wrist. And, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome, the, na- the word or the name gets misused to, as if it's any problem in your hand, which it's not. But somebody who has true carpal tunnel syndrome, true pressure on that nerve, and is waking up five times a night because of the pain and isn't able to button buttons because of the numbness, and being able to decompress that nerve, you know, through a relatively simple procedure and get them better. And, and you know, it'll be amazing. A month, you know, a few weeks after the surgery, they'll just be like, you know, they'll come in and say, well, my life's completely changed. It's back to where it was before I had this problem. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be able to do that. Um, we certainly deal with it with larger problems. I mean, one of arthritis at the base of the thumb, wearing out of the joint at the base of the thumb is a common problem that I see. And it can just be completely disabling because of the pain. And we fix that. We remove the worn out bone and stabilize the thumb. And it's just amazing the difference it makes for people. And on that same note is when somebody comes in who's had a bad trauma, who's, you know, had several, you know, fingers or their whole hand really badly damaged. And, you know, you come in and you can see in their eyes, they're thinking they're never going to be able to use that arm again. And, you know, that, and to be able to take that kind of a problem and take it step by step and address it and get them back to where they're functioning really well, where they're normal or near enough to that, that it's just not a, a life-altering situation for them, you know, when they already are so concerned that it, it will be, is those are great things to do. It's very rewarding. We spoke with an osteopathic doctor the other day, Dr. Tim Schultz, who talks about different uh, relationships with the hand and the brain now and sensation and everything. I'm wondering if you, as a surgeon, uh, who clearly understands the anatomy and the physiology from a very concrete aspect, do you have any kind of a an abstract aspect of the of your view of the hand and its relationship to us as a human? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure that I can easily put that into words. I think there are no question. You know, one of the things you got at in the, in that question was the um, that hands representation or involvement in with the brain and when we map the brain the amount of the cortex that the, the kind of the advanced portion of your brain that is dedicated to control of the hand and sensation of the hand is huge so you know it, it 
it is no surprise that there are, you know, feedback loops that, you know, there are areas of where pressure or acupressure in certain areas of the hand will have effects on the rest of the body. Um, I can't say it's something that we deal with. I mean, uh, a tremendous amount. I think the, I've seen it and I, uh, but I don't, it's not something I have any real expertise in. Um, people's, you know, the effect of problems with the hand on people's um, entire, the way they look at their bodies is just huge. And that's, um, that may not be directly answering your question, but, you know, there's there's no question the interactions between the hand and the rest of the body are huge. I mean, the hand is what we use kind of to a large extent to communicate with the physical world. Um so I, I respect that. I respect what you're saying. I don't know that I really have any expertise in it. Do you uh, have any good ideas for us as how to protect our hands just in general as we move forward in life? Are there things that you suggest people do, exercises of types or yeah. anything else? Yes. Um, you know, I think the we touched earlier, I mean, the, the, that issue of Repetitive activity is probably the single biggest one. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about, you know, the ergonomics or the correct placement of your body. Very important. Um, the other part is just limiting the amount of highly repetitive things that you're doing. I mean, if you've got to work on a keyboard all day, you know, we talk to patients about taking a break every 30 minutes, not allowing themselves to be hours of nonstop, highly repetitive activities with their hands. You know, if you're working in an office setting, then, you know, whether it be a break to go to the water cooler or a break to go to the bathroom or just having another task that you can take on is really important. Um, the, the long periods of continually repetitive activity cause inflammation. They cause the tendons to kind of rub against each other and cause pain and tendonitis. Um, beyond that, just looking at the way you do any activity and trying to heavy, repetitive, pinching, squeezing activities that are done, you know, once in a while, no problem. But if they're being done every day, it's an issue. And, you know, I'll get construction workers all the time who have been doing something using, you know, whether it be a nail gun or something else that requires significant pressure to, to squeeze and push and are doing it all day long. And they get into trouble. They get real, they get pain and they get worn out joints from that. So, you know, I think the, the advice is really look at the things you have to do and try to limit the amount of highly repetitive activity that you're doing. Um, doesn't mean not at all, but remember, that's not something that was part of what we did with our bodies up until the last 50 years, really. And looking at that, very important. Beyond that, um, just a general being active and strengthening is probably the best thing that we have. I mean, I don't you know, we, when people are recovering from an injury, we'll use squeeze balls, we'll use putty that allows them to pinch into it, um, and then light weights for general upper extremity strengthening. Uh, it's, al it's also good to know that, uh, as we talked about before, the hand, you know, is connected to the brain, it's connected to the spinal cord, and there are many things that can cause a carpal tunnel syndrome that are not even coming from the wrist or the hand. Isn't that right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. What... So now that somebody has some kind of an infection in their hand uh, or uh, 
an injury of some kind, but not bad enough to go to the emergency department right away, and they have it for a while, at what point should someone decide that they want to go see either their private doctor, an orthopedic surgeon, or a hand specialist? What's the decision to see kind of a hand specialist in that whole process there? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, it, it's funny how that works because we'll have people where we've treated somebody in their family and then suddenly we become the primary care physicians. And when I say we, myself or my partners, for anything in their hand or arm that comes up, whether it be large or small. And, you know, the the other day I was called by uh, a trainer friend of mine and he had a, actually a guy who plays NBA basketball, plays in the NBA, who had hurt himself. Well, it was actually really wasn't a very serious injury. You know, it was pretty simple laceration. But, you know, this is the guy's career and, you know, he makes a lot of money and he's got a high profile. And so they brought him right into me to sew him up. And, you know, that's fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, realistically, you know, it's the first issue is do I need treatment at all? And, you know, there are most injuries, you know, if they're not open wounds, you can give it a little time. You know, I mean, the things, the obvious things, if something's pointing in the wrong direction, I mean, if a finger <laughs> arm is pointing in the wrong direction, there's probably something broken that you probably need to get in right away. Um, if there's a big open wound, you probably need somebody to clean it out and sew it up. Um, you know, short of that, you know, ice and rest and using a splint are fine for kind of the first-line treatment, and then if something's not getting better, getting in and having x-rays done is fine. I think the majority of the time, that should be done through a primary care physician, you know, whoever, you know, whether it be a family practice physician or your internist or pediatrician. Um, they're confident in evaluating those, and we, I, with the family practice, or the primary care physicians I deal with, we, I discuss with them and often we'll give them talks on sort of what things need treatment, more aggressive treatment sooner. And most of them have a pretty good sense of that. And, you know, what I mean by that is that there are some injuries that can surprise, you know, that there are ligament injuries that aren't going to get better and, you know, can be recognized early on. You know, one is when somebody falls on their outstretched thumb, a kind of skiers injury. We also see it in bikers and they'll tear the supports at the, what's called the MP joint or kind of the middle joint of the thumb. You know, those don't heal. And there's really no reason not to get in and get that dealt with because they really don't get better on their own. Now, that's as opposed to most sprains in your hand where, you know, ice and rest and is all you need. Um, you know, likewise, you know, a little bit of redness uh, suggesting a small infection, probably okay to watch it for a little bit. But, if, you know, if your whole hand and arm is puffing up and hot <laughs> and draining, you know, it's time to get in sooner rather than later. And, um the, the the majority of people we see are referred from other doctors. Um, yeah, that's the nature of kind of a specialty like we're doing. But, you know, in Santa Barbara, there are a lot of very, um, very aware patients, very um, sophisticated patients. And that will when they know the problem is something that's in our area, they'll call us directly as well. And, um, you know, I think it's don't as a patient don't be stupid. Don't, if something is really, you know, problem, it's usually pretty clear and, you know, don't, you know, denial isn't always the answer for things, but the sec, the opposite end of that is if there's no open injury and nothing's pointing in the wrong direction and you don't have an infection that's getting out of control, there's nothing wrong with 
being a little bit patient with it. Well, that's, that's really interesting to know that yeah. that one sprain or that one pull that you're saying in the thumb that does not yeah. heal. So what is that a surgical procedure that individual would need? It is. I mean, that gets called a gamekeeper's thumb or a skier's thumb. Mm. And what happens there is that when that thumb gets forced away from the rest of your hand, oh. the support tears. And it happens to be there that when it tears completely, it pull, it retracts back. And then a what's called an aponeurosis or a covering over the muscle that's next to it blocks the place that it's supposed to be attached. Sprains are the opposite. Most sprain, in a sprain we mean a partial tearing of a ligament. Most of those will heal themselves. Mm -hmm. But there are very specific ones, and it's important for whether it be an emergency room doctor or a any primary care physician to really recognize those sorts of things mm -hmm. um, and and to get those on on to us. You know, I, kind of the same sort of example would be that you know a small laceration. Well, the the primary care physician needs to evaluate. Do the tendons work? Can you know somebody might have a small laceration on their finger, but I've seen you know lacerations that are only a centimeter long and don't look like very much, but they happen to cut the tendon and nerve underneath. So if somebody comes in with that laceration and their finger's numb and they can't bend it, you know then it needs to be on to a specialist. You need to see it. You know the majority of the time that no, that's not going to be the case. But those are the things that primary care physicians are very good about being able to test for, and it's important that they do that. Mm. What about animal and human bites, including somebody that hits someone in the mouth, which yeah. then they develop an infection on yeah. uh, their finger, which becomes translated as a human bite, essentially, even yeah. though they were the aggressor? That's correct. We call those fight bites. And, um, fight bites? Fight bites. Yeah. You hit somebody in the face, and because the tendon and even the joint are just almost right below the skin, you, know, you may have gotten a good blow in, but you end up with a laceration there that goes right into that joint, and you get terrible infections from those. I mean, the fact is that mouths carry a lot of bacteria, and whether we're talking about humans or dogs or cats or um, – I was yesterday treating an owl bite, and, um, um, you know, well, it's from a wildlife care group. And <laughs> these things, yeah, these things happen, you know, and the – but they get infected very, very easily. So, you know, really any bite injury probably needs to be seen by a specialist. They need to be on antibiotics. They need to be, the wound needs to be washed out really, really well. The injury that Glenn is talking about, that fight bite, those are, can be just very serious because the wound isn't real big, but the tendon is right beneath the skin. I mean, if you make a fist, mm -hmm. You can see that tendon right beneath the skin. You know, it's a millimeter or two beneath the skin. And so anything that cuts, you know, with force through the skin is going to cut into that tendon. You go right down to that joint. You get a little bit of, you know, a little bit of saliva in the joint with lots of bacteria. And those people, you know, if they don't treat it, you know, you know, the tough guy, he hits somebody else in the mouth. He goes home. He's happy. He won his fight. And two days later, his hand is blown up like a balloon and they end up needing to be surgically drained. If we get them right away, they often don't need surgery. We can just wash them out. But if they go on a few days, forget it. Michael, we always ask uh, our guest for a special health tip, uh, something that you in your own practice and your own journey have uh, recognized that 
uh, not too many other people might know about it, and it would be great for our show to share this with us. Do you have some kind of a health tip? It doesn't have to be related to the hand, but just anything in your uh, practice. Oh, all right. Now you're, now you're going to get me. Um, I, you know, keep it related to, to what I do. And, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, the main thing I'd say is, you know, for orthopedic problems, hand and for, but for any orthopedic problem, you know, be respectful of the, of, uh, you know, of your body. Uh, that if your work activities, you know, just be aware of where you can really do some damage and trying to be looking out for those things. You know, the, the don't take the guard off table saws. Don't, you know, um, <laughs> don't, don't, you know, if you're left-handed, don't reverse your hands and use them in a way where you're crossed over and putting yourself at more risk. Um, and then that's, I, in a side, Glenn, and I don't mean to, but, you know, we actually did a study a few years ago that I was one of the authors of that left-handed people have more hand injuries proportionally than they should. Mm. Not as, and, and it's because they're trying to use equipment in ways that's not really meant to be used. So, you know, being constantly aware of your surroundings and where kind of the risk of real injury is, I think it's just super important. Um, you know, if you've got children, being aware of, you know, where they're at real risk. I mean, you know, everybody has to be able to live their life. We don't want to be paranoid. But, you know, there are some things out there to really be aware of. And, you know, see in the kitchen people just doing dumb things with knives that, you know, just think for 20 seconds if you've got something in your hand that can really do damage before you use it. And, I mean, that would be my main tip is that, you know, an ounce of prevention really is worth a pound of cure. That's a great, great tip. Uh, it's a fingertip, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. Uh, I wonder, it would be an interesting study to do on left-handed oyster shuckers. Oh. <laughs> to, to see if they injure themselves more than right-handed oyster shuckers. It, it, it would indeed be, and I haven't looked at that, but we did a study um, where we looked over about a 10-year period at you know a tremendous number of significant hand injuries, and there was about double the incidence that you'd expect of left-handedness. You know, so there's no question that you know we we live in a right-handed world, and when you start working around sharp objects, objects that can do you damage, it it is an issue. And you know, I whether it doesn't matter whether it's an oyster shucker or a carpenter, it's something to be watching for. You know, we, we've talked about a lot of things on the show. I'm sure there's so many more things that we could talk about that would be helpful to people. Is there anything that uh, you thought when you were going to do this show that you would like to speak about that you haven't had the opportunity yet? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I think we've hit most of the things that are really that we see and deal with on a regular basis. And, um, you know, it's it's a wonderful field. That, you know, I love what I do, and you know, the hand is very very complex. Um, and so, you know, I think what I said before about sort of respect and just, you know, there are always going to be injuries, but you know, common sense goes a long ways with these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're you know, if you got something where things are you injured yourself, or you've got something that, you know, an arthritic problem that's getting bad and really limiting you, yeah, absolutely, come in and get it treated. But, you know, use the common sense along the way, and hopefully you, you don't need to. 
Excellent. Christina, any final thoughts or questions? Oh, no. or he, he, he enlightened me in the beginning of the show already with children and <laughs> preventing things from happening for them to them later yeah. in life. As you know, Glenn, that's my big thing, right? It's like, how do we help them prevent what might happen later <laughs> <laughs> while we can now, right? <laughs> yeah. So this has been Very magnificent. Big. Thank you so much, Dr. Beerman. Oh, my pleasure. And, uh, thank I you. would like to uh, also thank uh, Dr. Michael Bierman for being our special guest and sharing his wisdom and expertise based on his journey. I would also like to thank all of my healers and my teachers who have kept me on my journey. And so until next week when we search another uh, quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, I would like to say goodbye Thank you, Michael, and I would like to wish everyone optimal health. And thank you to you also, Dr. Glenn Woolman, our brilliant medical guide, as you gather all these wonderful experts for, for us laymen to learn from. It's fantastic. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today, of course. And we invite you to join us every Tuesday live at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1.30 Eastern Time for this wonderful world of the Magical Medical Tour. And of course, Wednesdays for my Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, of course, you can contact Dr. Glenn Woolman directly at myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman. And on Twitter, his handle is at Glenn Woolman, one word, and through his own website, glennwoolman.com. And be sure to learn about his metaphor square breath that we use every day. <laughs> Thank you, and until then, namaste.